Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. This show is all about sharing inspiration, uplifting stories and practical career advice from innovative, original thinking and pioneering women from around the world. You can find us here every second week or why not sign up at don'tstopusnow.co so you never miss a show. Plus, you'd make our day if you could rate or review us. It really gives us a boost in more ways than one. It sure does. Now it's time for this week's show. Hello and greetings and welcome to this 178th episode of Don't Stop Us Now. Now, that's a special number, not. It's a lot though, isn't it? It certainly is. And as we roll into December and approach the end of yet another calendar year, I just felt like marking the moment. Well, good on you. And it is crazy how time flies. Now, someone who's never been one to sit around and rest on her laurels or time is our fantastic guest today, Sarah Davis. Sarah is what I'd describe as not your everyday lawyer. Yeah, I like that. It's really true. These days, London-based Sarah has a broad non-executive board career and also advises other organisations as a general counsel. Her executive career has been pretty extraordinary. She spent more than 15 years as general counsel at the Guardian Media Group. That meant she was there in the thick of it when The Guardian was publishing the first WikiLeaks stories, the Edward Snowden stories, and of course, so much more, which we'll hear about. Yes. And while Sarah was there, she was being recognized for her work in pretty high profile ways, including being shortlisted for the Black British Business Awards and the UK's Hot 100 Lawyers, to name a few. But what's unusual about Sarah to me is her MO. You can really tell from her board career, which includes UNICEF UK and the Women's Prize Trust, which awards the highly regarded Women's Prize for Fiction, that Sarah has a huge heart and also clearly a love of the written word. That's for sure. In this episode, you'll hear more about Sarah's love of books as well as how she became a lawyer and what drew her to the media, the challenges Sarah faced when things just didn't feel right while navigating a challenging new role in lockdown, how she's coped with the microaggressions and slights she's received during her career as a woman of colour, and her advice to others who are at the receiving end of similar behaviour. I just love Sarah's compassion and empathy. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the warm and impact-focused Sarah Davis. Sarah Davis, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you very much for having me. We're so thrilled too. And we're really excited to delve into your career story and, you know, all the amazing learnings that you've had along the way. But before we do, I know you've listened to the podcast a bit, so you'll probably know what's what's coming, which is our favorite question, which is the way that we start our podcasts, which is if you were at a dinner party, 
How would you describe what you do to someone you just met? Well, firstly, I prefer not to talk about work at a dinner party <laughs> because I think it's really interesting. But I mean, obviously, this is a conversation about work. But I, um, I would say that I am a general counsel. So I work with organizations and take care of their legal and business issues, I suppose, really. I wouldn't go into more detail than that because people's eyes kind of glaze over when you're a lawyer, really, <laughs> or, or candid. Um, and, and that's part of what I do. And then the other part of what I do is I have quite a full non-executive life as well. And so I'm a trustee on various boards. And I would probably talk about that as well, just to give uh, people a sense that it's not one thing. Yeah, you've got that sort of portfolio career now, haven't you? Which I don't know about you, but I always find it quite hard to sort of sum it all up in one sentence that people understand (laughs) in terms of what I actually do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I am. You know, if I were, hopefully, if you did a Venn diagram of all the things I do, there's a big overlap in the middle that makes sense. (laughs) But there's a lot of, um, I have a lot of interest and I'm happy enough to sort of play in lots of different areas, actually, which I've been intentional about, but there's a lot to what I do. Yeah. And we will explore those parts in a moment. But before we do, when you were growing up, what really lit little Sarah up? You know, what was it that made you really excited? I would read, you know, I used to live in a book and I would read anything and I'm one of six and my mum and dad so eight of us in a small terrace house we grew up in Ipswich and Suffolk this isn't a sob story it's a reality growing up in sort of 1970s 1980s Britain both my mum and dad were factory workers there wasn't much money around I was number five out of six children and so my way of I think just being myself getting away from the kind of house that was always crowded was really just having my head in a book. I'm curious, you know, because books take you typically into imaginary worlds, but later on you chose to study law and become a lawyer. How did that arise? It was a a weird thing. I used to love a TV show in, again, 1970s, 1980s Britain called Crown Court. And the jury were real people. So the subject was sort of staged, was dramatised, but it was a jury of real people. And I used to want to be in that jury. I don't know, I was fascinated by it. I, I didn't end up doing criminal law, but something appealed to me about the discipline in law, actually. It's using words with an economy and a clarity which I don't have when I speak, you know, I'm quite verbose <laughs> um, when I speak. And, and But when you are structuring a legal text, conversation, discussion, argument, there's a real sort of discipline. Yeah, and that really appealed to me. And I think your love of words it explains how after a number of years in sort of copyright law and licensing law, you joined The Guardian where you stayed for a very long time. What was it that drew you to media? I think working in the, so starting my career, as you say, in copyright law, in intellectual property, you're working with creators in, in that sense. It was a, a lot of the client's. I had were writers and the firm that I was in, it was a sort of boutique 
law firm called Stevens Innocent, which is a great name for a law firm, right? <laughs> they acted for the National Union of Journalists. And so I would do, as a quite a young lawyer, as a baby lawyer, I would be doing sort of cases for the NUJ members. And I just love the kind of company of journalists, really. This genuine sort of values-driven, I want to get to the truth of this. And that was the type of journalism that I just loved. You know, I sort of found my, I'd found my spot, I think, really. And so it was kind of a no-brainer for me to go work at The Guardian. I don't think it was a no-brainer for them to take me, but it was certainly a no-brainer for me to want to be there. I can imagine that, you know, having worked in the media myself as a journalist and having had to send things up uh, to lawyers and the like, that there must be some pretty memorable scenarios that you were a part of over the, the 17 odd years you were there. What one or two really stand out to you as being kind of the key moments where particularly, you know, so much hung on your decision and you you've I'm sure felt the pressure of it too in 17 years there was a lot so I was there when the Guardian published the WikiLeaks files I was there when the Guardian did the Edward Snowden stories and when the Guardian kind of set off what became the Leveson inquiry into phone hacking by other news organizations in the UK so to be part of those big events really was extraordinary and my role was never really the editorial role and that's the really exciting stuff that's the film star stuff and I had some brilliant colleagues there was a woman called Jill Phillips and before her the woman whose role I took over was a woman called Siobhan Butterworth and they are fantastic libel lawyers they were just you know it was in their blood they were great at it I worked much more I suppose at the kind of corporate and the group side so I remember sort of having this really for me it was one of the I think the most sort of um, consequential meetings I had which was with our board it was a conversation around the potential exposure and liability for the board for publishing some of the uh, Edward Snowden revelations essentially and that was really consequential at the time the board was an American citizen, you know, what would that mean for her? It, it was just sort of, gosh, this is, this is real. <laughs> and the imperative to publish, because that's what The Guardian did. But how do you do this in a way that keeps the interest of the organisation and the people who are serving the, the organisation safe and front of mind? It must have been amazing because, you know, really all these moments are making history, aren't they? They are. And I think the good thing is maybe in a way they don't feel like it at the time because otherwise you might treat it differently, right? And what you're there to do is employ the skills you have, make the smart decisions, have the information or as much information as you're able to have. And nothing was by diktat. You know, it was a really collaborative leadership group and also the editor at the time and indeed the editor now the Guardian but the editor was Alan Rushbridge was a really great experienced journalist editor he'd been through a lot of scenarios and situations so as part of the kind of leadership group I should say you were working in a really collegiate environment and everybody was on the same page which was to make sure that 
you get these important stories out there in a way that maintains the credibility and the trust of the organization, right? So they have to be right <laughs> and that you protect your people. So, you know, it used to be this thing about sort of be right, not be first, which I really love because what you have is trust that as a media organization, your currency is trust. And so having that front of mind was really important. And I could get on board with that. That made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's really high stakes stuff because, as you say, trust is just so important. The Guardian was, was, and still is, really very innovative, isn't it? You know, particularly then, actually, because it was quite, I think it was quite different to other media organizations. What did you learn about operating in a culture that is innovative that you have taken away? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's that you work out of, it sounds really cliched, but you work across. So, you know, organizations now talk about not being siloed. The thing about innovation is that it by its nature requires you to sort of work in, in quite a networked way. So, you know, you may be general counsel, you may be kind of, you know, leading the legal function, but actually every piece of knowledge you have is enhanced by working with somebody else who's got a different set of disciplines that they bring in, right? It was the first time I guess I had seen in action how much more efficient it is to work with people who have other skills. And that may sound really obvious, but I think certainly when I was growing up and in private practice, lawyers kind of almost, not in ivory towers, but you were a temple of expertise (laughs) and your expertise was almost like a silo of expertise. When you're in an innovative environment, actually it's about cross-fertilization, it's bringing folk together, bringing folk together might not normally be brought together to make something happen and to try something. It's also a, 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 an ability or a willingness to kind of, for things to not quite work out and for, you know, to people say this expression, fail quickly, but learn from it. I think innovative cultures enable you to do that. That's really hard when you're a lawyer because when you're a lawyer, there's no margin for failure. I think as a lawyer, you have to figure out what that means for you. What is your risk tolerance, really? And that takes some working through because I think there's a there's a tension there. And do you think that that risk tolerance was something that you ever sort of really articulated and were conscious about? Or was it something that you just learned and it became subconscious? I think I had to learn it because, you know, when you are studying as a lawyer and say when you're private practice and even in house of course the job is to get it right (laughs) but in a commercial environment getting it right is informed by and has to be informed by what the business's risk tolerance is I found sort of it was helpful to really be explicit because often as well there aren't necessarily shared assumptions (laughs) you know and just in terms of the way we communicate in the world of work and in our personal lives as well, there may not be those shared assumptions. And so I think it's useful to sort of just test that. And so in my way, you know, as being explicit, it also enabled me to really empathise with my colleagues 
in a way that people may not expect from lawyers but or, or that it's part of the job but I felt to understand why somebody wanted to do a certain project why they were comfortable doing it where maybe you've got three out of six of the pieces in place you know was to really kind of understand where they were coming from and that I think just the reason why I've enjoyed every kind of uh, role I've had uh, as a lawyer in an organization is that you're helping people get to where they want to get to and you do that by kind of having a relationship with them or sort of at least understanding their pressure points their kind of you know there's some empathy there's a human connection yeah for sure you know it's interesting because as you say I don't think you would necessarily think lawyer and empathy go hand in hand but my experience is actually the best lawyers it does. They understand, as you say, understand what you're trying to get to. I think that's right. And I think um, hopefully that changes, and particularly in the context of generative AI, right? So now I'm doing some fascinating work at the moment with a think tank, a legal think tank. I'm having these fantastic conversations with lawyers who are thinking about what generative AI means for law, because law is absolutely, you know, we can see it's one of those areas where it's knowledge-based. And so it's absolutely kind of generative AI is able to implement uh, effectively, uh, I suppose, be applied in that context. And so what is the differential? What does that mean for lawyers? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of really interesting conversation about actually the value add for the lawyer now is this human-centric piece you know, this sort of judgment, this human understanding of the client's context. So it's not the law, the black letter law, but it's the contextualization and the tacit knowledge that the human brings. And I think that that will mean that empathy and EQ as part of the skill, I think lawyers will be much more explicit about that because that to some extent be quite a significant differentiator yeah interesting the whole human context for sure and I want to come back to human decision making and you had a really big decision to make because after 17 years at the Guardian you decided to leave you know how did that all come about and how difficult was it to um, make that leap I think I've been thinking about it for a couple of years I sort of felt that it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> and I wanted to leave when I was really enjoying it. I also was coming up to my 50th birthday and I, I thought, I, you know, I don't think I want to be somewhere 20 years. So it wasn't an easy decision, but I kind of was ready to make the decision and I just felt kind of positive about it. I know quite a lot of listeners are interested in career transitions and you know when it came to sort of deciding to to make the move did you have something lined up to go to or did you give yourself space I didn't have something lined up so I did kind of I hadn't basically stopped working since I left college and that's a really privileged position to be in I'd always been in work and I wanted to take some space I wanted to take some time out so I didn't have anything lined up. I also appreciate that's a fortunate position to be in. That may not be other people's story. 
you know, so I was sort of financially able to do it. It meant my husband's a musician and he travels a lot with his work. And it meant that I was able to sort of spend time with Harry for a prolonged period of time, which we had never done in the time that we've been married. We don't have children. That is a luxurious position to be in. I was reaching out to people because it takes time to find things. It takes time to kind of be on people's radar. I think you can't over communicate to people how they might be able to help you. I think to have that, to be, to do that, you have to know what it is you're asking for because people want to help but you have to make it easy for people to help you. That's such a great point, isn't it? Because so many people are reticent or they don't want to um, trouble people, but to actually be explicit about, you know, what you would hope they would could help you with. Yeah, absolutely. Because people are generous. I was having lots of conversations and reconnecting with people that, you know, I hadn't been in touch with. And again, there's part of me that it, that felt quite shameless. And there's another part of me that's like, get over this. This is what, you know, if they, my test was always, if they contacted you after a couple of years, you'd be pleased to hear from them. You'd, everybody will have a coffee with you or a virtual coffee with you. And so it really was about sort of feeding, I suppose, or rejuvenating my network so that I had some semblance of a soft landing when I yeah. was ready to start looking. And when you were ready, some while later, you landed up at a, a big television group, ITV, which was quite a bit more challenging. Can you tell us about, you know, your experience? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, there were a couple of things that I think made it challenging for me. One was I joined ITV in, in October 2019. And by March 2020, the UK was in was in the first of its lockdowns and so like many people you know my experience of that place was almost totally virtual and I personally found that really difficult to build relationships to build relationships of the trust that you need I think to then influence people to do the job well and it's a global organization and I was working as group legal director so across a global function basically at that time I was in 13 territories I felt that that just wasn't my medium I also think as well that the organization like every organization at the beginning certainly of that period of time was in crisis so when an organization is in crisis and you are new in an organization in crisis figuring out how you can add value is the most important thing. And that was a great learning because I could get on and do the work. I knew how to do the work. So the kind of crisis that the organization was in, because, uh, you know, as a result of the crisis the world was in, meant certainly for my role as a lawyer, you can very easily find what you are there to do and pick it up and run with it. Doing that in the, for me, doing that in the absence of having had the time to make the relationships and just to meet folk and really get to know folk, it can become really transactional because we're just there doing. Now, being in a crisis situation with people you know well and you've got years of experience and relationship with is an entirely different thing. I think it creates camaraderie and it kind of, you know, brings you closer together. But my experience of that was was that that didn't happen. It sounds 
really tough. You know, now that you look back on it, what do you wish you had known then that you know now? I, like everybody else in that time, was having to do, I think, what we must remember, which is to manage our mindset. It was a learning, you know, it was a learning. It was a, I, I certainly, you know, you're somewhere and you think, why doesn't it feel like I'm sort of in the flow? Why don't I feel like I'm doing my job at the top of my game? And remembering, I think, to be kind to myself, that the situation was challenging and that that didn't mean I was a failure or I was failing. The situation was challenging. And I, I do sort of think a thing that's come out of that for me, and this is something I would really want to sort of encourage people to think about is that something not going right, not going well, be aware of it, raise the awareness of it with yourself. So I think important way to think about it was that this isn't going the way you want it to be, but this doesn't mean you're a failure. So I, I think I it was one of the podcasts of yours that I listened to, <laughs> um, and it was managing your mindset. I think I, I had to do a lot of managing my mindset and it was what was happening in the immediate world of work and also what was happening in the world outside, right? Mm. And those things were not unrelated in this case, right? Yeah. But it was important to me to look after myself in a situation that wasn't going well. I think that's so important because I'm sure it's a pretty universal thing that we can all tend to be, you know, if you're a high achieving alpha type kind of person as many of our listeners and us are, you know, to be hard on yourself. And you're so right that you've got to take into account all the different aspects. And I love that you said, be kind to yourself. It's so important. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'm wondering, you know, have there been any specific challenges or opportunities being a woman of colour in the media? There have. I, I, I can't say there haven't. I mean, I love now that I see young women of colour in, you know, forming networking groups and supporting each other. And one, I love that there's more than one, right? Yeah. You know, there isn't that, you know, that's wonderful. But also that there is this, confidence to stand in their space right and to stand in their skin and to build support from colleagues and allies but to sort of you know unapologetically be there and bring what they bring and I love that I I didn't have you know 20 years ago I didn't have a language or a way to affect I think change and so head down get on with the job and the work speaks for itself. And I love that actually, yeah, head down and get on with the job because that's what we're there to do. But I'm calling out what's wrong and we'll call in those who support us. And that's, I think, the attitude. I love I love seeing it. One experiences microaggressions all the time in my kind of professional career. And it wasn't so much in the media environment, but certainly in the law turning up to meetings and people thinking that Sarah Davis hasn't arrived yet because you're the person standing in reception, right? <laughs> you know, sort of, or, or having people, um, I think, not take you seriously when they see you. But I think when you are in a position of authority or of leadership, to be undermined 
by a microaggression is really quite painful, I suppose. And that's where I had to learn my resilience. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, hosting a client lunch and being treated really disrespectfully <laughs> by the maitre d' at a fancy restaurant, for example, right? Those sorts of things. And, and just thinking, oh, where can I go that that isn't going to be the case? So there would be places that I would know I'd go to because you know you're not going to get that experience. And it matters, and it matters anyway, but, it, you know, in a professional context, it matters. So I think, like many people in the situation, you find a way to navigate through these things. And what's your advice to a young woman who feels that for whatever reason she's a minority in a situation and, and feels like she's sort of suffering microaggressions on a regular basis? from you know her team or someone that she sees regularly what's your advice to that person don't suffer it in silence and don't think that that is something you have to toughen up for because actually toughening up to toxicity is bad for yourself and you're building a tolerance to sort of toxicity and that's not good for you mentally or physically so Share it with somebody and call in support. I mean, that is allyship, right? Call in support. Yeah, it's so true. These days, as you said right at the outset, you've got a portfolio career. You've got some amazing non-exec board roles, including in the arts. How do you define what success looks like for you? Uh, I think feeling fulfilled, right? And for me, that feeling fulfilled is like, did I help somebody today? Really Pollyanna-ish, but it really matters to me. I've got, I've had this brilliant set of skills. I've had this fantastic education that's enabled me to have this great sort of professional life. That's useful to somebody. So being on a board, I'm not on the board as a lawyer, but I can think about things and issue spot and horizon scan because of my sort of lawyer spidey sense. And that's a value. That's a value to an arts charity. That's of value to the Women's Prize for Fiction, right? Wonderful, wonderful charity that supports and amplifies women writers and their stories being told. Likewise, on the board of UNICEF UK, they have fantastic lawyers in the organisation, but sitting on the board being able to bring your sense of the media landscape and law to that organisation is really invaluable. I think everything you do, if you do things with intention, everything you do can be useful if you bring it all together. So, you know, I no longer try and make a linear sense of myself, but I try and bring these environments together. So I know media, I know law, I know the arts. I've worked in a humanitarian organisation those all help each other. It's a real art, isn't it? Crafting your own personal, if you like, value proposition. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that is the value, but understanding the value you bring, crafting your own value proposition, as you say, and recognizing that it is a value, right? I was just that rather than this disparate collection of interests, it is a value. And I'm really grateful that I get to, I get to bring it. You know, I get to bring all of it. And I'm sure many, many others are very grateful for that, that the, all that you bring too, Sarah. It's been wonderful to speak with you, Sarah. Yeah, it really has, Sarah. Thanks so much. Thank you so much indeed. I've really enjoyed it. And I and thank you for what you do. There's such a generosity in this 
project in this work and I've listened to it and, and got tips and it's helped me, you know, in real time. It's really helped me make sense of some challenges I might be facing into or thinking about, oh, yeah, that it would have been good to have known that then. I hope this conversation is helpful and useful, but I see what you're doing is a real resource for, for women in, in the work and in their broader lives. So thank you both. Thank you so much, Sarah. That means such a lot. You know, I really love the simplicity of Sarah's answer to what success looks like for her when she said it was all about asking, did I help somebody today? Yeah, and you can tell she really means it. You know, I think lawyers generally are given a bad rap Just as she said when she tells people what she does and their eyes can glaze over if she talks about being a general counsel. Yeah, I I do think that's often true. So a special shout out there to all the lawyers listening now. Hello. Hello, hello. (laughs) We think you're great. I also thought it was fascinating how Sarah talked about the importance of empathy as a general counsel when trying to understand the risks involved with a particular action or not. You know, she needed to understand where the other colleague was coming from and why they felt comfortable taking a particular course of action. You don't hear lawyers talk about empathy much, do you? No, no, that's true. You know, I've also really thought a lot about Sarah's advice to others who are subject to slights and microaggressions to seek support and not suffer in silence. You know, how she talked about toughening oneself up to toxic behaviour is actually really damaging for your mental and physical health. It's a really good point. But, you know, I don't think it's a point that I heard growing up all those decades ago. How about you? No, I think you're right. And I think there has always been an implicit expectation that you should just toughen yourself up. I like to think it's a very small sign of progress. Yeah, I do too. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next episode, our end of 2023 wrap up. Oh, that will be a special one. I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, stay safe, have fun and have a great week. Ciao for now. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 